You're listening to the Empowered Woman, Badass and Unfiltered Podcast, a place for inspiration, empowerment, and personal development. Showcasing badass women from all over the world, giving tips on personal development, mindset, and healing. I'm your host, Olivia, transformational success coach for spiritual female entrepreneurs. Now let's dive into this episode. Have you hit rock bottom? Do you feel like this is the end? Do you know someone considering suicide? This is a serious conversation and it may change your life or someone you know's life. My guest, Kathy, is a woman that came from very humble beginnings. She lived for 35 years on the downward spiral, but she's had a profound come to Jesus moment and life has never been the same. She's here to tell others the miracle God has worked in her life. Thank you so much, Kathy, for joining me. And let's just go ahead and get started and sharing your story. Okay. Hello, everyone. So what do you want to talk about first? Yeah, no, you let's just go ahead and start with your background, like how your upbringing and what led you to where you were at your lowest. Okay. Well, I... My earliest childhood memories was when my mother and father was still married. It was, um, it, my father had a very, very low education. His education level stopped at age 14. So he joined the, the Navy and then he, within two years was found out how old he really was. And so they gave him an honorable discharge and he, ca- he came out of the army or the Navy, but they told him he could come back when he got of age. Well, that didn't happen. He met my mom and one thing led to another and they started having babies. So he never finished school and he never returned to the Navy. So he went right into the workforce. But with the limited education, his opportunities were also limited. And so he would just take whatever jobs that he could get. And understandable, you know, in, in, in that situation, that's what you got, that's what you work with. But so needless to say that he 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 never ran away from the family. He he stayed no matter how hard things got. And they got pretty hard because we have four, there was four kids. There was actually five to start, but the first one passed away. So that left a, a man on 14, 14 grade level education. So that would be what, freshman year? Mm-hmm. So and, and raising four children and a wife. So he, I mean, it was, times were hard. They always were. They, we never had it easy. Everything was very, very hard for him, but I admire him for that. But he was also an alcoholic. And so he would drink heavily because he was facing a lot of responsibility with very limited funds. I mean, a lot of men would drink, you know, but he would get very abusive when he would drink. I remember times he would come home. um, Oh, I don't know. After the bars would close me and my older sister at the age, it was probably about between five and seven is when I remember it starting. He would come home in the middle of the night drinking and he would grab us by our hair out of bed and make us go wash every single dish in the house. I mean, he would pull them all out of the cabinet and make us wash it. But later on, he sobered up and his our relationship got very, very strong. He, he Once he got sober, he became a very good role model. So I applaud him for that. But during, um, I guess I was around age eight, my mom and dad separated and then got divorced, but my mom jumped right into a relationship with, he was a family friend at the time. So we didn't know, I had been exposed to this man many, many times before my mother and him got together. But once they got together, 
and my mother married him right after the marriage he started he would think things that i wasn't prepared for would start to happen like he would come into my bedroom in the middle of the night and he would um i'm not i'm not really going to go get into a bunch of details there because then i'll get too emotional to speak but he, let's just say he started visiting me in the middle of the night in my room doing adult activities with my body and I, I i mean i i wasn't even wearing a training bra at the time i was just very young so this this continued every night it, it, it was every night it, it never stopped until i reached the age of 14 when i started having my menstrual cycle then the sexual abuse stopped and it just overnight went to physical abuse he would I mean, he was a big, big man. He's Indian and his last name was Bear. So if that tells you anything, he was just huge. He was probably close to seven feet tall, very masculine. I mean, there was no way I was going to overpower him at any time. You know, I was very scared of this man. And he would start beating me. Like if I left the, the light on one time, I left the light on in my bedroom to go answer the phone. And he got so upset that, you know, an iron that you iron your clothes with, he threw it at my head. I mean, I, I luckily seen it coming. I moved and it put a big hole in the wall. It would have killed me if it had hit me. And he would drag me, like if I left the, the lights on on the hallway to come downstairs for something because my bedroom was upstairs, he would drag me by my hair up and down the stairs. I mean, just up and down over and over and over again until I learned my lesson never to turn the lights on, even to this day, having the lights on in the room when nobody's in there really bothers me, you know, because I, I just have a knee-jerk reaction to that. Um, so I left home at 15. I, I decided that, you know, nothing was happening about the abuse at home. I would tell my mother, she would make excuses for his behavior as far as the sexual abuse went. And then when the physical abuse came, I think she was just as scared of him as I was, honestly because he was a huge man. He was terrifying. And so I decided to leave home. My father was still drinking at that time. So even if I had told him something, he probably wouldn't even remember it the next day. You know, so I just took my chances out on the streets. And I'm, so at 15 years old, and in 15, I was living with two girls. They were the same age I was. I mean, I'm living on the east side of Indianapolis. It's that's where I was born and raised. It's even to this day, it's a very dangerous area. So for three girls that age to be out on the street, especially those streets, it was, I, I'm surprised they even made it out of that part alive. But I did. But I mean, I just, without any supervision, living in a high crime area, life just, I, I would just make a series of bad decisions. I mean, over and over again to survive at the age of 15. For example, I, I had a job at, I think it's called Burger Shift back then. <laughs> That's how old I am. But it was, it was what is known today as Hardee's. So I, I was working at Burger Shift and I was the closer because I was still going to school even though I lived on my own. I mean, I, I was still, school was important to my father, my biological father. And, and I just always felt that, you know, it, it's in my best interest to go. I seen what happened with my father not having an education, at least a high school education. So that was always important to me, even when I was on the streets. So I would, my, my routine was I would carry my uniform in my backpack. I would go to school in the morning and then I would catch a bus right after, right from school. I would still have my uniform in my backpack and I would take the bus all the way down to the other end of Penn Street and 
to Wentwood Square, there's a Hardee's there. Well, it used to be Burger Chef. And then I would get I would get, get to work and I would change into my uniform. And then I would do my homework on my breaks or after work. But um, so that's how I took care of myself. But that wasn't enough to take care of paying rent and paying utilities. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm going to say that I did was uh, shameful. And, and I was ashamed of it. But, I mean, that's what I did to survive. I would, my, the manager would teach me how to change the tapes. This was long before think computer, everything went digital, way long before that. So when you would make a sale, you could change the tapes in these um, registers. And so when she taught me how to do that, then I would start stealing from the company. I, I would steal a lot more than what was in the register. So that's how we, that's how me and the other two girls survived for a long time. You know, and then I, I, I kind of felt like, oh, man, they're catching on to me. So I need to get out of this job. So I stopped doing that. And then that's when I started going into working in the strip clubs, whatever I could do. You know, my uncle got me started in the strip club. So I, I started working. And I'm like, well, this is pretty easy money. And I don't have to steal for it, you know. And I kind of I stayed in that industry for a long time. But I, I started noticing a, an attitude change in me because there's all these men. I was thinking about 17 when I started doing that. And so I was like, here's all these men and they want me and they cannot touch me. This is great, you know? So I started feeling like I was getting a little bit of my power back and some revenge on the male race because when I was younger, my stepdad did whatever he wanted and I couldn't have fought him off. There, I had no control, you know? So it was a, in a way, it was, it was going about it all the wrong way, you know? Because soon in that industry, I started, I, I mean, I started smoking pot when I was nine and I was doing LSD in high school. But by the time I got into the, the clubs, a, a, a lot of people would offer me drugs like cocaine. And, and so I would just, um, well, you know, I was already using, very familiar with doing drugs at the age of nine years old. So I started, you know, if they're going to give it to me, I'm going to take it. You know, next thing you know, I've got a cocaine addiction. And I mean, it just spiraled really, really bad. And then I got introduced. I, I left, I got, met some people. I'm just going to leave names out because um, for my own safety and for just, you know, everyone else. But um, there was an instance where I, I, I was really, I was, I was street smart, but I was really naive when it came to the big players. You know what I mean? So I met this guy. He was much older than I was. But he, I mean, he took really good care of me. He had always had money. He never seemed to work. You know, I never really understood, but I never really questioned because I never thought to, you know. I never thought to until I came home one day and you know what a bale of hay looks like. There was like seven bales of weed. I was like, oh my God, I have never seen so much in my life. And from that point on, there was a problem, you know, because I knew way too much that I shouldn't have known. You know, it was a, I was walked in by accident and saw it by accident. I wasn't even supposed to be home, but I had a flat tire and had to come home. So that's how that came into the situation. And they put me in a huge situation. And so um, it wasn't long. And I, was, I realized the gravity of my situation. And so I got out of town. I, I went all the way to the West Coast, California. Out there, I got introduced to methamphetamine. And boy, that was, that was a rough ride because, I mean, it was cheaper. It lasted longer and I fell in love with it. I was like, well, this is a lot more affordable than cocaine, you know. So next thing you know, now I've got a meth addiction. You know, I mean, I would I would stay up eight or nine days in a row 
you know, and I was making really bad decisions. I was, I mean, I got, my addiction got so bad that when I was out there, once again, I found myself in the same situation as I did back home. I, I met with the wrong, run with the wrong crew, but anytime you're using, you're running with the wrong crew. Mm-hmm. I promise you, mm-hmm. anytime that you're using anything, you know, a drug, you're, you're, you're friends, you're running with the wrong friends, you know, so it didn't take long. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm not talking just a, 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 like a, like a Graham, I, I, my boyfriend out there, he ended up, they ended up catching him and he did 12 years on his first arrest because of the amount that he had. It was a, in a trash bag size, the size of a beach ball of meth. So I'm like, oh crap, now I'm right back in this mess again, you know? And I just kept running from the messes that I made. My life was a whole pattern of making messes, you know? Being in the wrong place, being with the wrong people, doing the wrong things, making the wrong decisions. Just, and it was just over and over and over and over again until my addiction got so bad that I, I mean, the things I, sometimes I look back and I'm like, uh, I don't even recognize who I am because of the things that, that I was capable of while I was using that. My, it came back home because I ran out of places to go there, you know, and, it, and I'm, I'm, I'm just in trouble, you know. So I came back home. It wasn't long before my pattern repeated again, you know. Now I, I'm on crack cocaine. So when I come back and I get get on crack, I'm like, oh my gosh, the it, it just it was so bad. Oh my, it was just so so bad. I would steal cars to steal in. I mean, it was and I, nothing I ever did would brought brought any sense of pride. And and every time it would just get worse. It would just get worse every time, you know. And then I finally, I, I stole some money from the wrong people, you know, trying to get high. You know, I never, I never stole anything. Well, I, I don't, you know, I just, you can't, you can't justify stealing. Stealing right. is stealing, and that's what I was just about to try to do. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna change that because this, anytime you're stealing, especially just to get high, you know, I mean. There's no justify. There's no justification in that. I understand how it happens, and I understand the power of addiction. But that's right. not going to solve your problems. All you're doing is transferring the problem onto someone else. Amen. Yeah. So I'm um, getting a message here. It says my internet connection is unstable. I'm not sure what that means. Oh, and I'm still seeing you. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll keep going. And okay. So, anyways, um, I ended up trying to buy some some cocaine from a guy. And he, he, showed, he told me like $150 worth of panda wax. And so I'm, he and me, I'm like, I, I got to get that dough, you know, and you just ripped me off of $150. So we got something to talk about, you know, well, ended up, I got stabbed. I got my face broke. I got my jaw broke. I got my eye socket was cracked. I was in the hospital for, I don't know how long I had multiple concussions. Um, I was beaten so bad that they, when, when I was in the hospital, they had me in the hallway that I had too much alcohol on board for them to give me any type of medicine. I had to wait for the alcohol to come down, for my, al- my alcohol content to come down to wear off. So I'm laying there, I'm in so much pain. I mean, all, my, my face is broken in two places. You know, I mean, it, it was awful. But I was beaten so bad that when my parents got there, my dad, they, they walked right past me three times, had no idea that was their daughter. They had no idea that was who was laying in the hospital bed. I was unrecognizable. 
think I sent you a picture of that. Yes. And it's just like, it, it really just that you, your story says so much, like the amount of trauma that you've dealt with the amount, like just like there's people with less problems like, and you're not, you're not saying that anybody else caused all of these problems in your life. You're taking full accountability for these things. Yeah. And I mean, I, that shows a huge amount of growth. And I mean, I really appreciate that, but still like just regardless of induced um, dramas and all of those other things, you had so much that you were going through. Like what, at what point was it like, this is the rock bottom, you know? Okay. Well, after I got stabbed, I still could not quit using drugs. Even after all of that, you know, I still could not stop. I came, when I was in the hospital, I was in such bad shape that they had me on, on um, every hour I was getting a new um, IV bag of a new kind of, of pain, pain medicine. They had me on say like at 12 o'clock noon, they would give me, they bring in a bag of morphine and that would run out in an hour. And then at one o'clock, they would bring in a liquid Lortab and that, and they would alternate those two for three whole days while I was in there. I mean, it's, and then they started stepping me down. Then they gave me liquid Lortab to bring home because my jaws were wired. So I, everything, everything medicine I took was liquid form. Well, in, in the presence of all of this morphine and liquid lords have, I developed an opiate addiction mm-hmm. and I'm still also addicted to crack at this time. So I'm, I'm going back and forth between the crack and, and the opioids and the crack and the opioids. And I mean, anything from, from pain pills to heroin, to mollies, to whatever I could get my hands on at this time, everything was my flavor, everything. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just it just got worse and it just kept getting worse. I would be in crack houses. I would get raped in crack houses. It was just it was just a mess. And no one wanted to help me in my family because throughout the this this whole story goes takes place over a 35 year period. Mm-hmm. So I mean over 35 years you steal from people for so long, they don't even want you in their house. And mm-hmm. you can't at first I would blame them, but I'm like now in hindsight, I'm like. I can't blame them. Just, I cannot in, mm-hmm. in, in emotional honesty, blame them, you know, but there was two members of my family specifically that never turned their back on me. That was my cousin, Ed and my father, those two, it, it, no matter how bad a shape I was, no matter how high I was, what my problem was, those two would never turn their back on me. My father would not make it easy on me. Make no mistake. I would go to him when I would be in trouble because he wanted to protect me. He, he knew the kind of trouble I was in. And when I said I was in trouble, he took it seriously because I really was, you know. And so he 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 would take care of me and protect me. But he never made it easy on me, not, not one time. But it's just he, what my father was, he was not like that. He's always had to work very hard for everything he had. And he made sure we did too. You know, he didn't give us anything. So when I would go to stay with him, he lived in a different, he did, lived in a, two or three hours away from many drug dealers, which was made it easier for him to help me, you know, because if, if I had access to it, I would find a way. And it, that was my pattern, you know? So he, he would make sure that like, if I was going to, if I was going to stay at his house, he would pay the bills, but I was getting a job. 
And he was not going to drive you around. You get on your feet, you get out there and you find a job because in my house, you work. Everybody works here, you know? And, and he was serious and that's what I had to do. Now, once I got a job, he would help me out. But yeah, I mean, it, he made sure that I, I always understood that even, even though you're sick and you have problems, life goes on and you have to, you have to make your way. You have to make your way through it, you know? But so I, I would, before, before I, that, that's jumping ahead a little bit. Because when I came out of the hospital, my addiction with um, with heroin and with crack and with meth, just everything, I was just addicted. There was anything I wasn't addicted to. You know, alcohol, you name it. I was drinking a case of long necks before lunch. You know, I mean, I just stayed. I stayed high for 35 years. You know, and when I wasn't high, I was asleep. But I finally had gotten into trouble once again. You know, and and there was no place left for me to go because I have done burned every bridge and gotten in trouble everywhere else. There's no place in my mind that I could tur- go safely without getting in trouble. And this time, I mean, there was just a lot. Of, I was just in a lot of trouble, you know. And so I decided I I can't do this anymore. You know, I just this is where I'm really emotional. I I was just I was tired. I was so tired. You know, I didn't, I had, I had a little bit of money and I could decide what I was going to do. I'm going to stay here and face what's coming because I know it was coming. These people were very dangerous. They were very, very, very dangerous and they weren't playing. Everybody thought I was just, you know, paranoid until they started coming around and they was like, oh crap, this is real, you know? And so I just decided, I said, okay, I'm, I'm tired. Like I'm getting emotional. And so I decided that day, you know, I said, I can't do this another day. I cannot live like this anymore. I had a little bit of meth on me and I had about a hundred dollars. Oh, let me give me a tissue. (laughs) And I got in my car and I just drove. I just drove. I didn't even have a destination. My destination wasn't physical. You know, I I made my mind up that I was going to just commit suicide. You know, I said, I'm just going to end it because I'm miserable. I can't, I can't, I can't even be awake unless I'm high, you know, I can't go to sleep unless I have something helps me go to sleep. I'm, I'm just so miserable and I'm making everyone else miserable. And I had no one, no one else, nowhere else to go. And, and I just, you know, I was afraid I was going to put my family in danger and everything. It just, it just collapsed in on me. It just, it came to a boiling point and this was rock bottom. So I, I made a decision. I had this idea that I was just going to put everyone, including myself, out of the misery. And if I was going to die, I was going to decide how that was going to happen. You know, I wasn't going to be tortured. I wasn't going to be whatever they had in store for me. I was going to be in control of it. So I got in my car. I just got one full tank of gas. I went into the the store and I bought a box of razor blades, the big razor blades, and a box of sleeping pills and a bottle of water. I didn't buy any food. I didn't buy any cigarettes. I didn't buy any anything else. And then I just I just got in my car and I just drove. I just I was driving aimlessly. If you if there could have been a, a GPS marker on me back then, you 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 would have seen the desperation because I would just I would get off the highway around, get right back on, I'd go north, I'd go south, I'd go in every direction. But in any direction, I just could not seem to find the way, you know, and it was just very symbolic now what was happening, but I, I decided I was I'm down to a quarter of a tank of gas and I got off the highway and I wanted to go someplace 
to where I could be found because I didn't want my parents to worry. You know, I didn't want to be out there thinking, oh my gosh, for the rest of the life, what happened to her? You know, I didn't want that. I wanted them to have closure. I always thought of them, you know, and, and it's not like I wanted to die. I didn't want to die. I just didn't want to live. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense because it's the amount of things that are just bundled up on top of you and crushing, crushing it. And it's that amount of pressure. And it's like, I don't really want to die, but I do not want to continue to go on with the way life, the way that it is. So no, I completely get it. Like, I'm like, I'm such an empath and like your story, I really feel like I'm like envisioning all of these things. And I'm just like, I feel like the pressure of it oh. all still, yeah. still, it's like, there's so much pressure attached to it. And wow. um, it's so to me, yeah, it makes complete and total sense. So I get, I get to, I'm, I'm, I got it. I'm down to a quarter of a tank of gas and I'm driving through these. I didn't even know what state I was in at the time. I, not, not mental state, but I'm talking physically. I had no idea whether I, I could have been in Kansas. I don't know. And in fact, I think, I believe it was, um, it wasn't Kansas, Nebraska. I was going to say Nevada, but it was Nebraska. And I'm driving through Nebraska and all these signs and even the billboards and everything was like, there was anti-abortion billboards. They were saying like, choose life stuff like this you know and all these signs were coming at me and all of them had to do with life or death you know choose life choose life and find god and things like this and jesus saves and and even the towns every town that i would go the closer i got to running out of gas the towns were getting more religious names like the town of joseph the town of mary the town of all these all these uh, biblical personalities and and so i i, I still I, I'm, I'm i'm understand i'm noticing this but it doesn't change my mind it does not change my mind it just uh, i don't know it, uh, my decision was still made at this time so i finally run out of gas at a rest area and i'm like okay this is it you know it was freezing cold it was so so cold and I'll never go back to Nebraska again. Never. You'll never see me in that state again. But um, so, oh, what happened? You're here. Okay, there you are. Okay, so um, I'm in Nebraska. I'm out of gas. It's freezing cold. I have no food. So I'm like, okay, well, don't chicken out now. This is what you came to do. You don't have any money to call anybody. You don't have any money, period. Everything is gone, you know? And so... I ran out of minutes on my little flip phone. So, you know, there, there was no one to call, no way to call them, even if I wanted to. So I just started breaking out the sleeping pills that I bought. And they, I think I talked about this earlier. They were all in these very tiny little blister packs, like mm-hmm. much like the ones you get with um, Benadryl. So I'm having to really fight to get these pills out. And I'm like, it, it was a very, it was, it was a struggle because my hands were cold. And so... It took me, it seemed like it took me five hours to get them all out, but I finally got them out because after a while, your little thumbs start getting sore trying to peel them, that hard plastic back. And so I finally got them, got them out. I think I, I had like 17 or 18 of them out and I put them all in my mouth and I chase it down with the, little, the water that I have. And I'm thinking that I'm going to fall asleep soon, but I don't. 
I mean, it takes forever for these pills, it seemed like. And then I, I finally got drowsy. I said, okay, this is it. And so I drift off to sleep. I wrap up in this quilt that my stepmother had made me. And she passed away. Her and I were very close. And I just, it kind of just went for like I was being hugged because she was already gone. And so, so what I'm talking about. <laughs> so uh, I wake up, I fall asleep. And then I wake up two hours later in just total disbelief. I'm like, I, it, I said, I'm, I'm first I'm questioning, I'm like, did I die? And this is what it is. And then I start seeing people move. I see, start seeing like people pull in and use the restroom and stuff. I was like, okay, I'm still here, you know. And I just, I was just disbelief that, you know, I'm. But I didn't want anyone to see me cutting myself, and it was still daytime. So I waited till it got dark. Once it got dark, then I started cutting, and, and the first few cuts hurt pretty bad. But I, I just decided. Just I noticed once I got so deep in my wrist that it didn't hurt anymore. So I just decided on the third one, and you can see on my wrist, there's a couple little practice runs. Those were the hurties, you know, but the third one, I just got in there real deep and I just ripped far down as I could on my wrist. I'm such a squeamish person too. Like, I'm just like, oh my God, I'm looking at my wrist right now. Once, once I got that skin open underneath, it didn't hurt. So I just kept digging and kept digging. I would use the same razor blade until it got so slippery with blood that I couldn't control it anymore. And it, it, whenever I would try to slice it into my wrist further, it would just move up. So I'm like, okay, oh my then I would get a new razor blade. I went through an entire box of razor blades on both wrists. Once this one, I was like, okay, I'm gonna give this one a break. Cause I almost went all the way through and the vein just kept rolling over. Every time I would get close to it, it would roll further over. And I, it would, flop, it would and- flip on the other side of the bone there. So to get to it, I would have to cut through the bone. And I'm like, oh, I'm never going to make it through the bone on a razor blade. So I would start on the other wrist. And then when it, it, the same thing, I mean, I was targeting, I would see where the vein was under my wrist and I would target that area and I would just go as fast as I could. But every time the vein on the other side would roll again, it was the strangest thing. And but then the blood started coming and, and the blood, it was, that was also the strangest thing because the blood, I would see it come up to the surface, but the minute that it got to the surface and got even with my skin, it would turn to gel. It oh was goodness. almost, yes, it was almost jellified. It, 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 it wasn't a scab. It wasn't, it wasn't bloody water. It almost looked like a watery jello and it would just coagulate there and just stay. And it was, I would just squeeze in my arm trying to get the blood to come and it would just turn into this jelly. And I just wasn't understanding. I wasn't understanding. But now I'm out of razor blades. For some reason, I wouldn't pick up a razor blade that had been laying on the floor because I didn't want to get an infection. I just wanted to die. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't use a, an unsanitary razor blade, but now I have no no clean razor blades to use. So I just, I sat there, I'm like, really? And then I, I finally fell asleep again. And then I woke up about an hour later and that's when the vision started. That's when I started seeing the demons. They was, oh, they were so... They they weren't actually like scary, like you know, goblin demons, but they were just tormenting me nonstop. I would feel them in the back seat pulling my hair. I'd feel them under the car seat, pulling on my feet. They would just not leave me alone. It was continuous, continuous. I mean, they would just they wouldn't terrorize me, they would just annoy me nonstop. It was nonstop torment. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. 
okay so that's what they would just do non-stop it would just they would laugh at me they would just I mean just how like what was what time of night was that because I, I I actually heard something um yesterday about the hours the watch hours that we have and what we're supposed to be praying for during these times um and like the demons tend to play the most between 12 and 3 a.m I think it was yeah it was probably around there because the sun hadn't come up yet but it had been down for a while you know but like I said it's, it was the winter time so the sun would go down earlier anyway yeah. but I, I, I sat there for hours cutting on myself I mean hours mm. you know just trying to get trying to I mean it, I, it, 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 I just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going I almost went all the way through on my right hand I, the doctor said I was almost all the way through to the other side. I had, I had dug so deep. And on my left side, I had rows. I had layers on one side and rows on the other. I so at what point did God like show up? Okay. So the demons have been terrorizing me and terrorizing me and terrorizing me all night. Then the sun comes up the next day. And so the next day they I wasn't bothered at all. I, there, there was nothing in the car with me other than me, you know, and I felt so alone. I sat there and I just, uh, I'm like, well, what do you do now? I guess I'll just wait it out. You know, I mean, I just can't last forever. And I would work on my arms during the daytime trying to get them to bleed. I would sit here and squeeze and squeeze. And, you know, like they tell you when you're getting your blood pressure, you know, to sque- or when you're going to mm-hmm. get donate blood to squeeze. So I just kept practicing squeezing, hoping I could get all the blood to drain out, you know? And it just, it would just, it, it, it would put a little pressure on it to where the jelly part would fall off, but then more blood would come up and it would just gel right over. Do the over. same I'm thing. Like, yes. Mm. I'm like, well, okay, this is really strange. But then when nighttime came, the demons were back. And this time they were a little scarier the second night because they, although there was a few of them that was in the car pulling on my hair, they, they would continually pull on my feet, you know, making me think something was on my feet. Um, they was outside the car also this time. It, I, I could just hear them all night, just dragging. What I would look out the window because I would hear the dragon. They were banging on the car, you know, doing crazy things. And then they would, uh, I, would I would see them like dragging torsos by the car, just body parts. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know. And I'm, I'm am I seeing things? Is this real? You know, I mean, I, I couldn't tell whether it was a reality hallucination. Or what I didn't know, you know, all I know is what I saw. I know what I saw. And uh, about that time, when I was really starting to get scared, this, this, uh, it was a pickup truck, you know, the pickup trucks, but they have the campers attached to the back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was one of those and it was an old couple and they get out and they go to use the restroom and then they get back in their car and they leave. And then there was no more, no more activity after that. But then the sun came back up. And so I sat there for a second day. And I was like really trying to squeeze that blood. I was, I was at this point looking for the cleanest dirty razor. I said, I'm just going to start working on this some more because I, I don't know what else to do. You know? And so the second day, the entire day, I'm spending looking, looking for the cleanest dirty razor I could find. And then working on my wrists some more, trying to get, trying to get them to, trying to get that vein so I could die. And uh, still it never happened, you know, but I, I am bleeding pretty good now, you know? I'm, I'm, the blood's not just gelling up anymore. It's it's actually bleeding, but um, just still not not enough to die apparently. And so I decide I'm gonna, I, I have to finally go to the bathroom. I, I haven't had any food or water or anything. I'm, I'm working on my third day now. But the second night when I was in there, 
in that in that car. Like I said, I didn't have any gas. So I couldn't really turn the car on or anything. I had no power to the car. I was sitting there. I'm just sitting there waiting for my demon friends to show back up. And they, they did. But then all of a sudden, it just got real, real quiet. I mean, just you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, I'm right there on the interstate. There was no cars, no nothing, just complete silence. And I thought, okay, this is where I'm getting ready to die. And then about that time, this, this person is standing in front of my car. I have no idea where he came from because, like I said, it was complete silence. There was no cars, no nothing. And there, there was this man. <sighs> There's this man standing in front of my car. And he's glowing. It's like, it's like my headlights are on him. And I could see his face. And he just, and he never said a word to me, but he just looked at me and just made the gesture like he was closing all of his fingers because I was taking in so much cold air. And so he stood there with me, but he never said anything, just looking at me and stayed there for a long time. And I was just looking at him, trying to understand who this man was. Why he's not saying, why is he just standing there? It's freezing. And all he had on was a blue jean jacket and a pair of blue jeans, you know, no winter coat, no winter attire. But uh, the next morning, I, I must have fell asleep because then the next morning I wake up and I'm really craving a cigarette. And this is the first time I've craved anything physical since I've been in the car. And so I get out of the car and there's a semi-truck parked behind me, a semi-tractor trailer parked behind me. And so I get out of my car and I go to ask him for a cigarette, you know, because I, can't, I didn't buy any. So when I go to ask him for a cigarette, he hands down a cigarette to me. But when I reach up to grab it, my, my coat sleeve scraped over the, the, the cut on my left hand and he could see how wide open it was. It was just, it was massive. It was spread wide open all the way across and he could see my bones just as easy as I could. And he's like, oh my gosh, cause I screamed it hurt so bad. And then I tried to reach up to grab it with the other hand and he's seen the other wrist and I almost, I was falling backwards cause I was so weak and he grabbed both of my arms below the cuts, about closer to my elbows, and he lifted me up into that tractor trailer. And it, I mean, it, the conversation lasted about maybe three minutes. He offered me a sandwich and he offered me some pudding and some water, and then he gave me a pop. And he said, uh, I'm gonna have to call 911. And I begged him, I said, please don't. You know, I don't know why I was so afraid of 911, but I asked him to call my ex-boyfriend. It's the only number I could remember. And so he called, he called my ex-boyfriend, Brad, who then said, hang up, call 911. And then at first, he, I guess Brad didn't believe that, it, you know, he thought maybe I was just, you know, bluffing or something, wanting attention. Brad asked him, he said, how bad is it? He said, it's pretty bad. So um, Brad tells him, hang up, call 911, and then call me right back. Don't let her know what you're calling. And so uh, that's what he did. But uh, then the ambulance came and picked me up ambulance driver looked at me and they said do you believe in god i said i'm not i don't know and she said well she goes i never really did because i'm pretty scientific she goes but i, I have to say i believe now but he she said there's no reason why you are even alive she goes i cannot find one good reason why you survived this and she took both of my shoulders and crisscrossed them both my arms and, and stuck them up to my chest and held them there the entire ride to the hospital I get to the hospital and the doctor, he's sewing my wrists up. And he, he told me, he said, if you would have waited another half an hour, 
I would have not been able to sew you up. We would have had to grab skin because the skin around the wound was dying. That's how long I had to spare. And he said, I can't think of one reason. There's no, nothing in my, in any of my doctorate education that, that can explain how you survived this. He goes, I don't know how you survived this. He said, he said, nothing human could have saved you. He said, I don't, I don't, he goes, I don't understand. He said, the only, the only explanation I can see is God has intervened here. He said, because there is no reason for you to be alive. He said, no one would have survived this. He said, you did. He said, you survived this. He goes, and I'll never forget you. And I'm like, well, I don't think I'll ever forget you either. And so from there, they took me to the, uh, the uh, mental health facility where I stay. I was there probably two weeks on high suicide watch. But from, from seeing it for myself that night, this person, this vision in front of me, he never left to get into a car or he just stood there. He stood right in front of my car watching me the whole time, you know? And so I, something in me changed that day. There's a reason why God brought me through this, you know? And this is, my life has never been the same. I have, I've never been lost since like I was. I've never, I've never felt alone. I've never felt lost. I, I felt confused a few times because I'm a babe in Christ even today. You know, I still sometimes I get confused with the Bible, you know, but then I just, he finds mm -hmm. a way to show me what it means. And mm -hmm. I still, I still, I read my Bible every day. You know, I talk to God every day. I, I, I always, at least once a day, find somebody to tell about, you know, to, to, to tell him how good my God is. <laughs> because look what, done, look what he has done for me. My life, I've never, I mean, that was the last day I ever used, you know. I, I'm in, in the spirit of intellectual honesty and emotional honesty here. I, I have smoked weed here and there once in a great while. But I mean, I just don't, I, I, I've given up that lifestyle and I've traded it in for something so much more. It's so more, so much more fulfilling and, and empowering, you know, because I still to this day crave, I still fight addiction every day, but I don't fight it alone anymore. <laughs> I don't fight, I do not fight it alone anymore. When those days come, I dream about getting high. I think about getting high. And I crave it once in a while, but you know, when those times come, I, I just hug my Bible, I get into the word, and those cravings, just like that, are gone. They're gone. Just and now to, because the devil likes to play with you. And if oh, you ask yeah. the if you ask God to release those demons from you, he will. Uh -huh. And it's uh -huh. literally just taking it day by day. And it's yeah. not necessarily the easiest thing to do, but it is totally feasible. And yeah. I mean, for in my honest opinion on marijuana is it's just like alcohol, in my opinion, but has more um, medical benefits to it. Medicinal, that, yes. that is, in all honesty, that is how I truly feel about it. Um, I think it's a better alternative than giving people opioids and other things like that. Like, I'm not a big fan of the large pharmaceutical companies i look at them as yeah. drug yeah, dealers yeah. just like somebody yeah. that else that's selling selling meth absolutely. and selling fentanyl to somebody i i see it the absolute same the difference is they got a degree in it you know 
And you got the government saying, okay, you can be my drug dealer. Exactly. I agree. I agree with this so much. And, you know, I've never forgotten my roots. Now I'm here's, 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 let me, let me, let me just brag on on God for a minute and, and show what, what has happened in my life since that day. I've told you what happened prior to that day. Mm-hmm. Not so many. I, did, I didn't get into the specifics of the sexual abuse, but just know that it was very active and very present, a very huge part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And then, then the, the poor decisions that stem from that afterwards, being on my own at 15, having no supervision. And I, I didn't have to, to obey, but I didn't have any rules to obey by, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't, <laughs> you know, I, I was very rebellious. I was very angry and I was, I was, uh, I was mentally ill. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt. I, I'm never denying that. Right. You know? And so since that, since that day though, things have turned around so much that I just had, I, I, I started working. I got into to working for things instead of stealing them, mm-hmm. you know, or selling my body for them. I, or, 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 anything I stopped that behavior I no longer was a part of that that was that was in the past God has the future and now that I'm on the right hand side of God let me tell you it's it, I have goosebumps right now because this we've seen the past 35 years of that in the last 15 years I have been able to hold a steady job I'm talking a good job and that, that led to more opportunity, that led to more opportunity, that led to even more opportunity. And now I'm at a place where God says, okay, Kathy, you have all of this experience and, and what happened to you? He said, and you've overcame that. And, and he says, now I want you to take this and do this because you have the strength to do it now. I have strengthened you. And he had, because through... Through all of these opportunities along the way, I've been able to save money. My last job that I left, I was making $125,000 a year. I went from a crackhead to a thief on the street that was steal from you, Olivia. I would have stole from, I did steal from my dying stepmother, Olivia. That's who I was. I was a sickening person. Oh, oh goosebumps. It makes me sick to think of the things I have done. For the, for the, in the name of in the name of getting high, it makes me sick because I look today. I'm like I would never do that, never, never. You know, first of all, because my God is always in the room with me. He sees what I'm doing. Amen. He sees what I'm doing at all times, mm-hmm. even when I'm picking my nose. I'm like I'm so sorry, God, but it's got to come out. You know, <laughs> but it's true. You know, I always know that God is right there, present. He sees everything, and I would never. I I can't say I would never. Because we're all sinners, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trapped to this physical body just like everybody else, you know. But I, I try in all earnesty to always be obedient and do what he would make, make God proud. Because he brought, me, he brought me from a very, very, very dark place into the light of Christ. And now I have been, I took the money that I had been saving during that job. I've been putting it back and putting it back and putting it back. And now I am less than a year away from my bachelor's degree in ABA psychology. So I can have the credentials to reach out to people that have been through what I have been through and say, Hey, let me, let me show you how I got out of it. And I'm going to lead them right to that Bible girl. 
because that's how that if, if it wasn't for God, I would not have made it. I would not have made it through. You know, he, he saw something in me. I didn't see in myself, you know, and he's so and like Christian life coaching is what you want to yes, do. Yes. I love that. That is, yes. that's going to be, I love it. I love it. Yes. That's, that's going to be, that's going to be my, that's, that's going to be my um, gift back to God. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's nothing I could, there's nothing I could come up with that would be a satisfactory, you know, but I, I just serve him, you know, and I, I just, if anybody out there that is going through this and thinks that there's no hope, there is, there is so much hope, you know, I mean, it's not, things don't change overnight. God still works on me every day. He still works on me. I've made it through, I, I, I've had a big curse of a potty mouth. That's been one of my, my biggest downfalls. I had the filthiest mouth, girl. But like I said, when you're on those streets and you're 15, you don't have somebody correcting you. You just keep going and it just it, without any type of guidance or correction, you, your behaviors just get worse. They escalate, mm-hmm. you know. But now I have God correcting me, and I and I I'm glad to say now that I don't cuss, I don't drink. I drink. It, 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 nothing wrong with having wine. The Bible says it's okay, but you're not supposed to be drunk. You're exactly. Not, you don't get drunk because you might miss that calling when he comes back. You know, so. When, when I do drink, I, like I have, I have a glass of wine or something at the very end of the night when I'm usually, I'm usually in a lot of Bible study at nighttime because it's, I got quiet time for me and God, you know, but I, I usually have like a small glass of wine or something right when I'm getting towards the end of my Bible study. So that way, when I take my pills to help me sleep, because girl, I'm going through that menopause. <laughs> yeah. You don't sleep. Oh you know? man. So I, I usually have a, a prescribe a doctor prescribe me some trazodone is what I take. But it's just I told him I don't want anything that's addictive. I, if it's got addictive properties, keep it. I'll figure it out myself. You know, yeah, trazodone is not addictive, and you don't really have the pill hangover the next day. So I'm like, this is working good. That's you know? good. So yeah, so I have a glass of wine just to help that kind of kick in a little bit, so I can get some sleep and get up and do school the next day. But yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just the change in my life and the direction I have now. I see, I, I see, I see, I have goals, you know, I have good goals because all my goals are, they're related to God, you know, and all mm-hmm. of my goals are God oriented, everything, everything, you know, I just, I, I just, I can't, I can't praise him enough. Girl. I'm telling you, that's what, that's what got me through it. You know, and like, and, and I, I reflect often back on what the ambulance driver said and what that doctor said that there is no, they cannot find a physical medical reason for me to be alive today. They said nothing human could have, their own words, nothing human could have saved me from that. Nothing. And I mean, it, it's been such a, it's such a traumatic experience, like all of it, just your life, the past 35 years, like just the amount of struggle that you went through and and then him still saying no I'm not done with you I that God is God is so good like and he also like that's why I started doing what I'm doing like he gave me a calling to do this like not even gonna lie and I enjoy doing podcasting and coaching clients as well so much like just and you're gonna when you're coaching and everything, you're going to enjoy it so much too, because just seeing the change in other people's lives Mm -hmm. and knowing that you helped along that process 
like that God used you as his change agent is such a rewarding feeling. Like it really well, is. I, I just, I just, it breaks my heart to know that sexual abuse, that's really where the, where it all began, you know, mm-hmm. was there. That was the key pivotal moment because I mean, my father wasn't a perfect man when I was a child, but he would never have done that. Yeah. Never in a million years would he have gone. No, he would never have done that. You know, that was the changing point. And, and I was really angry at God for a long, long time. I was pissed off. You know, there's my cuss word. Uh-oh. But I was, I was, I was mad at him. I was mad at my mother because she didn't do anything to protect me. I was mad at my stepdad. I was mad at the world. I was just one angry kid, you know? And when I got out on my own, I just, well, I mean, I started smoking weed when I was nine. So I, you know, I had already experienced that there are places that can let you escape for just a minute, even of all this inside stuff. And then I started when I was at home before I left 15, I started self-mutilating. Do you know, Adine, are you familiar with self-mutilation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I would, I would self-mutilate at home. I would start cutting on myself with the razor, but I was never, the intent was never suicide. Never, never once did I, did I even think about suicide, except for when I was 11 years old. We lived in this house out in Mars Hill on the west side of Indianapolis. And my stepdad, this was when it started getting physical. So we transitioned from sexual abuse to physical abuse. And he was just as horrible then. I mean, he would, he, he would be, hit me like a man. Okay. I, at one point, I was standing on top of the stairs. The same ones he just dragged me up and down, up and down, up and down. And I had these really long pair of sheer scissors. And I had them open and I had them positioned right between my rib cages. And I just kept telling myself, all you have to do is fall. All you have to do is fall. All you have to do is fall. But I just, I didn't do it. But I, the, the thought was there then, you know. But it just, it has snowballed more and more out of control. I mean, it just does. It just snowballs. It snowballs. So I guess that what I would want to say to anyone that is going through this, if you're a kid, that's going through sexual abuse don't believe the threats don't believe the threats you go to an adult at school i mean if if you're scared at home you tell an adult at school you know tell because you you have to you have to tell if not it will never get better you tell someone don't be afraid tell someone you know and if you're out on the streets and you're out do, you're getting high, you know, and you think that there's no, you know, I, I understand what being dope sick is. I get it. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's, it, you, you wish you was physically, you wish you would physically die because the dope sick is so bad. I get it. I've been there. I have been through it. I, I know what you're feeling, that there's hope. It's, you're not, you're not, you're not as chained to it as you think. I know how hard it is and how powerful, especially heroin. I understand how powerful that addiction is. It's a horrible addiction. It's a horrible addiction, but there, but I got out, I made it out. I made it out, you know, and you can too. You're not as chained as you think. You just have to trust and believe God. I know you think because you can't physically see him that 
it's not real. But let me tell you something. You can't physically see him. I did. You know, I did. I physically saw him. And oftentimes, divine, divine intervention comes to you in the form of human physical body because it's something that you can recognize. Mm-hmm. If, God, if God showed himself to you in his natural state, you would be terrified. Mm-hmm. Not only would he survive it, you know, so he comes he comes in in ways that we can see, we can understand. You just have to look for the characteristics and then you know. You see God. You do. You see him. I saw him. I know. That was no demon standing in front of my car that night. And he kept me helping me. What, what God's message to me was that night, because I thought I was in control. I thought, no, when I die, I'm going to do, do it my way. I'm in control of that. God said, no, you are not. No, you're not. Go ahead and try. And he, he, t- he told me, I'm not in control of anything, not even my own death. I'm not in control of that. He decides when it's time. He decides, not me. Because here I am, you know, mm-hmm. here I, here I sit talking to you, your beautiful exactly. face. Exactly. You know? And it's like, if they, if, if you clicked on this and you're listening to this, it's because you got a calling to, to listen to this because you needed to hear it. And I just want to thank you so much, Kathy, for coming on um, and sharing this story with so many people and really, you know, just sharing so much of your life with us. Um, it's, you know, extremely appreciated because like I've sat over here, cried, flipping, just uh, imagine, like put myself in the, in your shoes in the position, like as much as I could with as much empathy as possible. And I'm just like, Whoa, like this is such heavy stuff to even share. So thank you so much for doing that. And, you know, showing that like, no matter how bad you think it is, it can get better. You just have to trust God. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Empowered Woman Badass and Unfiltered Podcast. If you found any value in this, please consider sharing and subscribing. Now go out and be a badass.